Let me begin with honor. Uh, I think in some ways, I'll just use a metaphor here. In some ways, I think what happens is the spirit uh, dips a toe. Have you heard this before? In every community to kind of get the feel if there's welcome, if there's longing, if there's desire. And, and I think um, what I noticed this morning, even with, with prayer, if you don't come for pre-service prayer, sometimes that's just the most beautiful thing to see what God is like up to in the nucleus of a people and how that sort of reverberates. I feel like there's a welcoming of God amongst you. And so that's such a, I think that's the highest compliment a church can receive is not um, your stats and your numbers or whatever, or your buildings. It's the matter of, are the hearts of, of the people of God open to more? And so I just sense a spirituality of more in this place. And of all places like Portland, the other day I was stopped in the middle of the street on my first day here, and this girl just said, I heard you just talking about God to who you're walking with. I want to prophesy over you. And it was just like, I will, yes, in the name of Jesus, I receive that. And it was just like what God is doing in Portland, um, and specifically Bridgetown, I just affirm, and it's such a joy to be a part of. I thought of this verse for you um, that comes from Paul thinking about Rome and just like agonizing and longing and having affection for a community that he had not met. He said, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being proclaimed in all of the world. And to think about being a community um, and coming in from the outside, I get to say that this community, your faith, is being proclaimed in all the world. And it's a beautiful thing to step into this stream. And so it's a real honor for me to even have the privilege of opening the word of God with you and pursuing the heart of God alongside of you. Um, so my name is AJ, and the church around the world today is in a season called Easter. Our Eastern Orthodox friends across the world are actually celebrating Easter this morning, and it's so beautiful. The main theme of Easter, it comes from this Greek word, anastasis. Put it on the screen. Let's say that together. Anastasis. It's this idea of rise up or get up, push through the soil. Now, I live in this quaint city uh, just about three hours on a plane east of here called Grand Rapids. If you stay on that plane and go another 12 hours, you end up in this other little town called Rome. Maybe you've heard of it. Now, if you're in Rome and you go to the west of the Pantheon, you end up in this chapel at this church called San Luigi di Franceschi. And inside this church, you'll find this little chapel on the corner with one of the greatest paintings I've ever seen by Caravaggio. Any fans of Caravaggio? Called The Calling of Saint Matthew. Some of you already know what this looks like, right? Let's begin our formational journey this morning by sort of gazing into this piece and seeing what might come out of it for us. Now, this is an interesting painting on many levels. First of all, it's a strange painting for the time. When you walk in, you wouldn't know that, but in the Baroque period, ornate, elegant, royalty, you paint things of high stature, high degree, high cultural capital, and that's not what this is. This is Casual Friday. We look at this dress and think, oh my goodness, they're ready to go to a wedding. No, 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 no. This is, this is like Hawaiian shirt day for them. That's what this equals at this time period. And it's weird that this would find itself in the middle of the Baroque period in one of the greatest churches in Rome. What this is is a dingy tavern full of shady money men. And if you really study the piece, the more you get into it, you realize Caravaggio paints these dirty feet and this dishonest gain. And when you look at the windows up top, it's covered in soot. You don't even get like a landscape of what's happening in the greater city of Rome. It's all covered in dirt. So for Caravaggio 
in the calling of St. Matthew, this is the 17th century equivalent of, for him, how Jesus would have walked into the life of the tax collector called Matthew. And what this means in Easter tide is this. God is not a germaphobe. (laughs) We have a local God. From the birth of Jesus in a smelly cave to the mess of a bloody Jesus on the cross, ours is a faith where God isn't afraid to get involved in human affairs. But what I really want you to see here isn't just dirt. I want you to see fingers. Almost half of the characters in this, in this piece are pointing in a certain direction. You can see the, the point here of Jesus, right? This man on the, the back right represents the Christ, to Caravaggio in this piece. By the way, does it remind you, look at that finger, does it remind you of another piece, right? Does this remind you of, of maybe something in the Sistine Chapel with Michelangelo, right? Do, do you get that? Do you see that, 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 that understanding there, right? <laughs> Now, what's happening is Caravaggio is taking the finger that Michelangelo creates on the first Adam, right? This is the creation account of Adam receiving life. And he's putting that finger on the Christ, whom Paul names in Romans as the second Adam. So there's a transfer here happening. What the artist is saying is this, that in Jesus... A new creation has begun. And God is beginning to resurrect human hearts all over the world. Get it? There's more fingers in this scene. Who's who's Matthew pointing at? He's the bearded man second to the left. He's pointing at himself. Jesus walks into a dingy-suited tavern, points a finger unexpectedly, surprisingly. And what's Matthew saying? A scoundrel of a money man. Are you pointing at me? Who, me? You got got the wrong guy, man. I'm sorting dishonest gain here. This is uncomfortable for me. And it's the moment of Matthew's spiritual awakening. To which you might be saying, like, that's great, speaker guy. But, like, we're in a series on spiritual stages and not art history. So why are you wasting my time? Um, Because of this. Listen to this. Matthew 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, it's easy to sort of gloss through that and then move on to the next thing, but check this out. Matthew got up. What's the Greek word here? It's the same derivative of Easter. Anastis. Rise up, Matthew. I'm looking at you. Rise up. And Matthew got up and followed him. Okay, what's your point? My point is that the resurrection life doesn't begin when you die. It begins while you're still awake. And this is the beginning of resurrection life in Matthew. Many of you are here today because you can attest to the reality that somewhere along the life of your little script, God pointed at you and said, Anastas, rise up and follow me. So in this stages of journey series you've been in, that's what we call awakening. And for some of you, that occurred in a moment, and others of you, it was a process over time. The spiritual journey typically begins with some kind of burst or some kind of eureka or some kind of 
connection neurologically that opens for you a cosmos that's imbued with meaning and significance in eternity. That the God of the universe unexpectedly comes into our life amidst dirt and the soot of our soils and points and says, I choose you. I choose you. I choose you. Anastas, Anastas, rise up, new creation. Which quickly awakens us to this beautiful invitation that what we've been summoned to isn't just a point in time in our past, but a kind of pilgrimage that each of us have to make. And this is where we set out on the transformational journey. We've been talking about those sort of Eastern languages of purgation and illumination and union. That what begins in awakening isn't like, yeah, I, I did this prayer thing back there so I can go somewhere when I die. What begins at, a, at awakening is supposed to carry you through into the dynamic of the next season of your life. And that's not all just like kicks and giggles and really good times. There's crosses to bear. There's things to actually hold on to and things that we have to shed and ways that we move through purging and illumining parts of ourselves and then finally toward union. So the question for your life and mine in this series of stages of spirituality at Bridgetown isn't um, will we be invited into the possibility of life transformation? The question is will we choose to resist or consent to it, right? That our God seems to have a real respect for our agency and freedom as every relational encounter should. Last week, John Mark gave the aim of the journey in one word. I like it. It's a good one. Love. Let's take that word and continue to move into it. I want to extend it further into nine words from 1 John chapter 4. I fell in love with this verse. As he is, so we are in this world. Let's say that together. As he is, so we are in this world. There's sort of a dance to it. Right? This in nine words. This is the flourishing life to become like him. Let me rearrange this because I like the spatial effect here. The idea of as he is, so we are in this world. I like the triangular sort of ascent that this makes. We are these little icons designed to reflect his glory and grace. Second Corinthians chapter three, Paul gets in on the deal and reminds us that we're little revelations of God's glory. And that we're actually, the, the nature of spiritual life for us after awakening is to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. That we're born into glory and carried through into a kind of developing glory throughout all of eternity. Now that's something. A sort of revelation, a kind of reflection that as he is, so are we designed to be in this world, that you are a little icon. That's a life worth living. That's a journey worth taking. So in this Stages of Formation series, what I want to put on the table today is that in every stage of formation, we have to pay attention to our dimensions of being. Our dimensions of being. It's possible to fully engage parts of your being in formation while totally ignoring others without noticing. Are we awake? Yes. Morning, are we good? In every stage of formation, it is possible to partially seek God. Where certain places of your life are just lit up in spiritual desire, all the while other areas of your life in my life remain dormant, what Beatrice Chestnut calls the waking sleep. So I want to invite you to consider the possibility for a couple minutes this morning that there may be areas of your being that are asleep, that perhaps you're not even aware of, and that this morning God wants you to anastas, to wake up, to rise up. Most evenings I... Um, I spend 
I end the evening with my five-year-old daughter doing this ancient prayer. Let's do this. Let's get some blood flow. Can we stand together if you're willing and able? And, and we do this ancient prayer with our pinkies. You heard of this? Put your pinky in the air if you'd be so humble to do with me. If you don't feel comfortable with that, that's so cool. Pinkies in the air. This is what my little five-year-old and I say every night. Repeat after me. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Thanks. It's called the Shema. To see a little five-year-old say Adonai Achad is pretty awesome. It's from Deuteronomy 6. The idea is, is that there's more power and presence in the pinky of God than all the might of Egypt. Right? That's the, that was the cry of the Israelites. They passed it on to us. It's the central passage, by the way, in all the Bible. When Jesus is asked what's the most important commandment, he points to the Shema. He points to Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Jewish prayer, people are called to pray this at least three times a day, sometimes four. And here's why this matters. For the Israelites, of all the senses, hearing, hero Israel, was the most critical in the formation process. And it's different than just listening. In hearing, it only becomes legitimated when it's walked out and integrated. Listening, you can, you can listen to something and actually do nothing about it. What happens when God is saying, here, Israel, he's not saying, let me pump some, some doctrine into your heads and just hang on to that until you die. He's saying, let me form you in your minds and in your hearts that actually integrates holistically through all of your life. And yet it's very easy to only partially seek God, to hold a kind of theology in our heads or an emotional connection in our hearts that doesn't actually get fleshed out. I think that's why the movement of Jesus began by being called the way, because there was a pilgrimage that was implied a holistic faith that requires discipleship to go beyond theological belief. So, so we're talking about engaging every dimension of our beings, heart, soul, strength. God's after a holistic spirituality, hearing at every level. Let's take this one step further. further. I want to talk about three things, Penny, Popeye, and Pepe Le Pew. So let's start with Penny, right? Do you remember Anthony Hardaway? Do you remember this guy? A few of you, right? He was this elite, so I got a clap, that's pretty cool. He was this elite basketball player. His, he went by Penny. And alongside Shaquille O'Neal, he was nothing short of spectacular. And it, particularly if you lived in Orlando, which at the time I did. We're talking like the mid-90s here. Now, around that time, there arose this action figure called the bobblehead. Does anyone remember this? Or it's on like a dashboard, your dashboard in your car or whatever. It was this toy that depicted an embellished head on this tiny little body. And the thing would sort of like bounce, right? And so this figurine would sit on my bedroom dresser for years. And um, in recent years, I've started to connect this figurine with Shema. Because we've amassed more knowledge than we're ever going to apply. There's more conferences, more podcasts, more books, more tweets, more profiles, 24-hour news cycles. Like all of these contribute to the information age that we are steeped in. And that's not all bad. It's just that it's typically informative, not transformative. And we have a tendency to substitute one for the other. And if we're not careful, I think some of us are wired to function as these theological bobbleheads. So much information. So little transformation. You know, it's like, theological brainiacs that can defend any 
theology in their sleep, but care little about engaging in the injustices that are happening all around us. To be human in search of God is not merely being a head on a stick. We're created to seek God with all of our being. Let's talk about Popeye. You remember this child cartoon? Ate spinach, copious amounts of spinach, lots and lots. Which, by the way, per calorie, I've heard that spinach contains more protein than ground beef. So score for the vegetarians on this one, right? So when Popeye ate the green leaf, what happened? His muscles expand to meet whatever physical challenges demanded in the moment. That Popeye was a man of action. And this is what the entire cartoon was about. I don't know how they sustained a script over so many years. That was every episode. But it always left me wondering about whether he had an emotional life. Whether he had any sort of intellect that he had developed. Whether olive oil had seen him as a sensitive man, right? Or a deep thinker. Or merely just a man of action. And we see things like this all the time, right? A social justice advocate who does great things but has little time to actually cultivate a robust prayer life. To be a human after God goes beyond accomplishing projects. We were created to love God with all of our being. Then I think about the extreme of Pepe Le Pew. You remember this French skunk? Incessantly in search of love and appreciation, gushing all over. He was all heart all the time. It was actually, if you watch it now, it's uncomfortable because it's sort of borderline harassment. (laughs) But to be a human after God is is much more than gushing emotional love ballads to Jesus on Christian radio. We're created to love God with all of our being. You know, I mean, how many times have you met an emotional Jesus follower who has, like, yet to cultivate deep thoughts about seminal events like the cross? Why do these metaphors matter? I think they matter because Penny, Popeye, and Pepe Le Pew all expose our temptation to partially seek God. And the Shema... It's this call to love God with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our strengths. It's an invitation over life to, to, to grow and paying attention to the dimensions of our being, no matter what stage you find yourself in this morning. And I think one of the greatest needs that we have to do in the church today is the Shema reimagined. It's to think about how the most central verse in all the Bible can become the most central verse in my own heart, my own soul my own strength. I think the greatest unnamed struggle for most Christians today isn't unbelief. It's spiritual boredom, where we've not been given an imagination that goes beyond holding some ideas in your head and trying to defend them in the workplace. Unbelief is not usually the problem. It's usually the symptom of a domesticated imagination that partially pursues God in life. So what I want to do by ending here is to invite you to consider a couple dimensions of your being, a couple new ways of thinking about the Shema. And I want to, I want to humbly ask you to consider this like prayer under your breath of Holy Spirit. Would you just light up my mind when you're saying that's, that's for me? And would you also encourage my heart when it's, that's working right now in my life? So not just like, here's what you need to do, but like, wow, I'm thankful, God, because this is the journey I've already been on and you're affirming right now in my midst. John, John Mark said it, said it last week. This was the question. What are the invitations of Jesus to me in this stage of my apprenticeship? What is, what is the moment where he's saying, it's time to rise up here? Anastasis, new creation, new creation. First one is upward, upward. Question, how do you regularly guard, guide your heart toward transcendence? Part of that is Sundays. 
how do you regularly guide your heart toward transcendence? The only place that gets more cloud cover than Portland is a city called Grand Rapids. I get your world. I get what it means to take vitamin D through a pill and not the sunshine, right? It affects my joy levels. Anyone with me? You know what I'm talking about, right? It affects my spiritual awareness. If I'm not intentional by Thursday, I'm a functional atheist. And I'm serious. I'm depressed, and I'll wrestle with questions like, is this all there is? Forgetting that the world is charged with divine power and eternal purpose. I forget that the heavens are open. It just feels like this cloud is this, this iron ceiling that I never get beyond. So every morning I have this practice as an act of holy defiance. For the first thing I do in my day, I call it shower transcendence. I'm, I get in the shower, and I lift my hands. And I realize I serve in open heavens, even in the midst of cloud cover. And I begin my day in adoration and glory. And I'll just say this simple prayer. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and evermore shall be. And all it does is it reprograms my day to remember that I'm not alone, that God has not left the building, that God is local, that God is willing to get involved in everyday life. And it's up for me to awaken to that and to open to that. And what happens is something opens in us when we worship, when we actually raise hands, and the chemicals in our, our lives start mixing up and diffusing through our bodies, and we animate and come alive. So is there, are there places in your week where you have to have a holy defiance to remember, this is not all there is. And if I'm not careful, I'm going to buy into that societal script. The second is this. It's an inward direction. And it's, it's asking myself, is there regular space for solitude, silence, and stillness in my life? Because it's a necessity of reclaiming our belovedness. We don't go out into all the world to, re- to get our identity. We, we receive it. We don't achieve it. And then we live from that place for the sake of the world. In other words, I don't need you to define me anymore. Our relationship can be pure and free. I don't need to extract something from you to be someone anymore. I don't need to use you. I can allow you to be who you are, and I can bless you for the ways you're different than me. We move at such a pace that we don't even recognize the language of the God who lives in the center of our being. The primary language of God is a whisper. And God loves to speak when we'll remove ourselves from the pace and the freneticism, the worry and the noise. It's almost like God refuses to compete with the noise, but is always available to remind you who you are in those moments of inwardness. Do you have space for that in your life? Third direction is backward. Backward. I can give you a ton of church history if you're interested in it. I won't this morning. If you want books, let me know. Do you allow the sacred scripture to shape the script of your life? You know, script is the root word of scripture, right? It's because it's wanting to enlist you into a better drama than the ones we settle for. In the Shema text of Deuteronomy 6, just after what we read today, this is fascinating, super mystical, and I'm in. I love that kind of stuff. It talks about binding your heads and your hearts to the words of God. To bind him, right? That's why sometimes if you've been to Israel or you've ever been to Brooklyn or places where there's a, a high concentration of, of Hasidic Jews and even Orthodox Jews, where they bind the text to their foreheads, they put them on their doors. This word bind, it comes from the same word as mating horses together. I love that. This idea that, I mean, well, sort of. 
for, as a metaphor. So the text, what the ancient Israelites knew when they, when they realized that was the same word that we use when, when horses are bound together, that, that when they mate, the idea of the mysticism and beauty of the sacred scripture, when you bind it to yourself, something happens, something new can be produced through your life just like two horses coming together produce a new creation. The scripture, in a world that's becoming biblically illiterate, giving that a place to be bound to you so that something new can happen in you, a kind of rootedness. Do you allow the sacred scripture to shape the script of your life? These days, my Bible reading plan is really simple. I read the gospels over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because I want to be like Rabbi Jesus. And I can't be like him if I don't know how he walked in every mode of his being. There was once a rabbi who told a friend of mine, um, he said, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus unless you're really reading your rabbi once a week. Now, I'm not here to give you a prescription, but I am saying there was something convicting about that for me to say, do I know how Jesus showed up because that's how I want to show up. Because 1 John 4, 17, as he is, so we are in this world. Is there a place for simple scripture to be read and processed in your life? Forward. Are you willing to take the next step on your journey? Are you willing to take just the next step? I meet so many people who are drifting away from faith because of doubt. So many of my friends. I know it personally. It happens in me. Right? I'm a functional atheist by Thursday. Doubt is real. I speak from experience, and there are some faith communities where doubt is totally repudiated. You're not allowed to have questions. It's certitudes, and you need to just ram your theology down your brain and accept it, whether you like it or not, where there's like no room for doubt here. Just fake it till you make it. But there's this also equal and opposite reaction happening right now, where on one side you have doubt being repudiated, on the other side, a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of my friends and myself, were tempted to go to the equal and opposite reaction where it's no longer repudiated, it's actually celebrated. And it becomes the goal now. Nowhere in the New Testament is doubt celebrated as the aim of spirituality. It's validated. It's not celebrated. It's real. It would be like looking at carbon dioxide. It would be like looking at the breathing process, right? And being like, oh man, carbon dioxide, that's where the action is. No, 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 no. It's in the O2. That's where the new creation comes from. It's that sense of trust in the midst of our doubts. And so, I mean, many, I mean we're calling this phase, it's been going on since, Jacques, since Derrida and uh, many others, especially from French philosophy, called deconstruction, which I'm sure you've heard of. And we're beginning to treat this stage of formation as an end rather than a phase and drifting into a life of brunching as our main spiritual practice where doubt is real and it's not to be repudiated, but it's not also to be celebrated. It's to be validated as part of the journey. I mean, there would be no faith without the possibility, the inevitability of doubt. But here's what I'm constantly encouraging my friends to consider. Deconstruction is like the Las Vegas Strip you should drive through, but you can't make a home there. Eventually, we're called to a journey forward, taking the next step to have the courage to reconstruct faith in something beyond ourselves. And I have yet to find a story more satisfying and transforming 
and perplexing than the one Jesus invites us into. Maybe you're here this morning and cynicism has been running your life for some time now. I get that. Are you willing to take the next step in your journey? Let me relieve you of your fear here. That next step is not certitude. It's trust. It's fidelity. Who or what are you willing to entrust your soul? Well, that was intense now, wasn't it? Withward. Withward is this question. Do you routinely spend intentional time feasting and conversing deeply with other Christians on pilgrimage? By the way, these directions, not all of them are going to be fair. Find where you are right now and grab it and then celebrate also things that are working for you. So I'm not trying to give you like six things you need to go do. Do you routinely spend intentional time feasting and conversing deeply with other Christians on pilgrimage? Being on journey, rejecting this sort of do-it-yourself spirituality, intentionally giving others permission to poke around your business because we have so many blind spots that we need others to help us see. The sixth direction is outward. Where do you, and this was the one that probably comes at me most right now in this season, where do you routinely orient your life beyond Project Self? Where you become good news for another intentionally. I realize if I'm not careful, I can very quickly become a sort of theologian from the armchair. Where I love to read, I love to pray, I love to hang and feast, but I can forget that there's a world that's hurting. That there's a world that I'm designed to give of myself to in ways that are healthy and right rhythms. And so I just routinely, every season, find a nonprofit where I can show up once a week, once a month, whatever fits your routine, and actually just be and serve and not need to be someone there, just to totally be a servant on the wall. So right now I hang out in this wood shop on Thursday afternoons with formerly incarcerated men and women that are trying to get job skills, and we just build birdhouses. And it's amazing. We talk and we hang out and I use my hands. I go home with a splinter, which is like the highest degree of formation for me. It's amazing, right? So where are you routinely orienting your life beyond just self-advancement? I love John Mark's question. What are the invitations of Jesus to me in this stage of my apprenticeship? The forgotten direction that I'll close with is downward. Downward. Bernard of Clairvaux, as he talked about a little bit about last week, his formation vision. Someone asked him once, what are the greatest virtues? You know, you have temperance, fortitude, all that stuff. He said, the greatest virtues are three, and they go like this. Humility, humility, humility. In every stage of formation, what is going to lead you forward in maturity is the downward direction of humility, of honest self-confrontation. Not putting yourself down, but being aware of who you are and our journey that we have to make and how we can become good news for other people. That if humility is not the posture by which you journey, your stage of formation, wherever you are, will always be frustrated. So what if we took that one off the table? And we said, I will just choose to humbly show up, to receive whatever life has for me today and to process that and to move forward with it in joy and taking that to prayer and loving my enemies and learning what it means to actually presence myself that as he is, so I am in this world. St. Anthony once had this gnarly vision of God. Not of God, he had this gnarly vision about his life. And so he said to God, he said, I saw traps that the enemy spread out all over the world in my life. And I said, groaning, 
what can get me through these traps? And the voice of God responded and said, humility. It was the humility in Matthew that received the finger point of Jesus. In Anastasis, he got up and he followed him into resurrection life. Where right now is God pointing in your direction so very gently? It's not a stern, long point. It's a gentle nod to your soul saying, I'm calling you to rise up. This is your time for this next stage in your formation. This is what I'm calling you to orient your life around. What might that be for you? Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit bridgetown.church/give for more information. Thanks for listening.